Well, good morning, church. So very good to see you this morning. I, I love you and I appreciate you so very much. I'm so thankful for everyone who's gathered here and everybody who is watching online. And I have enjoyed this series as we've sort of talked about Jesus coming into the world. And isn't it, isn't it amazing? It still amazes me that roughly speaking, I know that there's some questions about dating and those kinds of things, but roughly speaking, our calendars... Even our modern calendars are divided into two halves. And what marks that transition between the the first half of our calendars and the second half of our calendars is this event. We have everything that came before Jesus, everything that happened before Christ, and then everything that has happened since our Lord was born. This event is so monumental that the world and everything, everything has changed because Jesus has come. Everything has changed. And of course, of course, talking about Jesus and talking about his birth, talking about his his reign, his current and present reign over heaven and earth, it brings us full of joy and gladness and happiness and all of those things are right and good for us to be joyful and glad when we talk about and think about and fix our eyes on Jesus. But I think we, we sometimes we rush so quick through this message about Jesus, through this story about Jesus, that sometimes we forget that even though the coming of Jesus brings incredible joy and gladness, that this story happens in the midst of grief and pain and turmoil and trauma and crisis. And it's supposed to teach us that this is very often where God meets us. That God so often meets us not on the hilltops, but in the valleys. God meets us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our our turmoil and our crisis, that that's where God so very often meets his people. So if you are in the middle of a crisis, if you are in the middle of a point in your life where you're saying this isn't a hilltop, this is a valley, this isn't a high point, this is a low point, this is one of the the most difficult and challenging times in my life, or I'm remembering and reflecting on one of the most difficult and trying and crisis-filled times of my life, then then my encouragement this whole month has been then that turmoil, that crisis, that low point actually puts you in the right frame of mind to see Jesus maybe like you've never seen him before and understand him maybe like you've never understood him before and experience him maybe like you've never experienced him before because Jesus comes into the world, not, not a world full of joy and happiness, not, th- not into a world full of singing and, and, and joy for everyone around him. He came into the middle of a very broken, a very crisis-filled environment. And that's where I want us to look this morning. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius 
See, I told you, Hunter, I was going to struggle with it. Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, Luke says that all went to be registered when Quirinius is the governor of Syria, and Caesar decrees that everyone throughout the Roman Empire is supposed to be registered and and participate in this census. Now, why, why would Rome... Why would Rome want to register everyone? Why would Rome want a census? Why would everyone need to register? Why would Rome want that to happen? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Taxes, right? Taxes, so that they could charge people taxes. Now, can you imagine living in that time, living as a Jewish person oppressed by the Roman Empire, enslaved essentially by the Roman Empire, and now... Now the governor and now the emperor are saying you have to travel maybe, maybe days and days and days of travel so that you can register so that they can take your money away from you. Now Luke says, Luke says all went to be registered. Now that's true. Everybody in Luke's story went to be registered. But Luke knows as well as his original audience knows that not everybody in Israel was so quick to say, oh, okay, sure. Governor, sure, Caesar, you want me to be registered? You want me to participate in the census? You want me to pay my taxes? Sure, not everybody wanted to go along with that. In fact, there was a guy named Judas the Galilean, and Judas the Galilean led a revolt and said, we're not going to pay taxes. We're not going to participate in the census. In fact, here's what Josephus says about Judas the Galilean. Judas said that this taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery and exhorted the nation to assert their liberty. Josephus also said this, he said, Judas prevailed with his countrymen to revolt and said they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Roman and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords. So he says, anybody who participates in this census, anybody who goes to be registered, anybody who pays these taxes, anybody who goes along with Quirinius, anybody who goes along with Rome, anybody who goes along with Caesar, you're all a bunch of cowards, and you can't give in to this, and you can't pay this tax, and you can't register yourselves, and you can't participate in this census. Even years later, when Gamaliel was reflecting on some of the the people who had come along and who had led revolts and revolutions, who had led movements. In fact, Gamaliel, a teacher of the Jewish people, was contrasting Jesus and Jesus' movement with Judas the Galilean, who revolted and said he wasn't going to pay taxes. Here's what he said about Judas the Galilean, that he rose up in the days of the census and drew away, followed him, were scattered. The movement of Jesus... Jesus' leadership, Jesus' kingship, the sort of Messiah that Jesus is, is in direct opposition, in direct contrast with people like Judas the Galilean. This is sort of what the people expected the Messiah to do, was to be somebody like Judas the Galilean was to be somebody who is like, we're not going to pay taxes, we're not listening to Quirinius, we're not listening to Caesar, we're not listening to Rome, we're not participating in registrations, we're not paying taxes to Caesar, we're not going to participate in census. What they didn't expect was someone meek and gentle and lowly like Jesus. So we keep reading. 
Luke chapter 2 and verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I just kind of want us to put ourselves in Joseph's feet and in his shoes and and think about what life was like for for him and for Mary. They, They had to travel probably about four days journey at least at least four days' journey into the, the hills of Judea. And, and it says that, that Joseph is of the lineage of David. That's why he's going to David's hometown, to Bethlehem. Now, what does that, what does that mean? Well, that means that Joseph is royalty, right? Joseph is royalty. He's a descendant, a great, 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 great grandson of the king, David. He's royalty, but not royalty like we tend to think of royalty. No fancy clothes, no crowns, no horse-drawn carriages, no one bowing at his feet. In fact, it had been centuries since the family of David had any respect or any honor or any power. In fact, you might think about indigenous people throughout the world who once maybe their family were chiefs Maybe once upon a time, their family had honor and respect and power, but through years of oppression and slavery, poverty, all of that has been taken away. And that's the kind of royalty Joseph and Mary are. They're royalty. They have royal blood. Their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was David, But after years of oppression and enslavement and poverty, they are very poor people. But notice also the meekness of Joseph. Joseph doesn't expect anybody to bow at his feet. Joseph isn't like Judas the Galilean saying, we're not going to go along with the census. We're not going to be registered. We're not going to pay taxes he meekly goes where he's told to go and does what he's told to do. He meekly obeys the orders of Rome. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, those two verses, we've sort of built an entire picture in our minds, haven't we, about the birth of Jesus and what that was like and, and what, what transpired as all of these things led up to one another. And, and, and we've got this picture that they come into Bethlehem in the middle of the night and Mary's about to give birth. We don't know that that's true. Maybe, maybe they traveled to Bethlehem when Mary was about to give birth, but maybe they had been in Bethlehem for days or, or weeks. It's possible that they had even been in Bethlehem for months. So we don't know how long they had been there. We don't even know um, whether they traveled there by themselves. We picture Mary and Joseph on a donkey traveling there by themselves. Maybe they had come in a family caravan. And we, we even picture this word that brings to our mind is the inn, like a hotel or a motel or something like that. And Maybe that's the case, that this is an inn in which there is no room. Or it could be that this is a a guest quarters. That word inn can also be translated as guest quarters. So maybe this is a family home that Joseph and his big clan of family had traveled to Bethlehem together. And the family home is 
bursting at the seams and there's only room for them with the animals. But one way or another, that all of these details don't really matter. But what really matters is that we see the poverty and the humility and the meekness of Jesus coming into the world. See, it wasn't an accident that God chose to bring his son into the world into this family. It wasn't an accident that he wasn't born into the family of Judas the Galilean. It wasn't an accident that Joseph of Nazareth was his father. It wasn't an accident that they they weren't rich and powerful. It wasn't an accident that they were poor and meek and lowly. Because this is exactly the way Jesus would live the rest of his life. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the way Jesus would continue to live his life. On the brink, in poverty, in lowliness. And I want us to get this, that rather than merely showering gifts from above, Christ personally took on poverty and chose the meek and the poor as his family. Christ could have just descended on high and just gave gifts to the poor and the meek and the lowly. He could have stayed up above. He could have had a big palace. He could have had lots of money. And he could have just showered gifts on all of the lowly peasants the way that some kings do. Some kings live up high and they shower gifts on those down below looking down on them, condescendingly giving them gifts, but our Lord doesn't do that. Rather than showering gifts on them from up above, Christ takes on humanity. And not just humanity, Christ takes on servanthood. Christ takes on poverty. Christ takes on meekness and lowliness. See, for Jesus, when he talks about the poor, he's not talking about them. He's talking about us. This is his family. And that's so important. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus had to experience everything his brothers and sisters experienced so that he could be a faithful and merciful high priest. That means Jesus experienced what you experience. Your crisis is his crisis. Your pain is his pain. Your poverty is his poverty. Your rejection is his rejection. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to be suspected. He knows what it looks like to be looked down upon. He knows what it looks like to be treated like a criminal for just existing. He knows what it feels like to go through whatever it is you are going through or have gone through or will go through. He isn't a king who remains on high and simply showers gifts on you. He is a king who says, I want to be present with you. And I want to experience everything my people 
experience. I want your pain to be my pain. I want your hurts to be my hurts. I want your crisis to be my crisis. I want to live life in you and with you. And do we see the difference that that makes? That our king isn't one who sits up in a palace and just showers gifts on people. That would be, that would be nice. That would be nice for a king to be generous and beneficent. It'd be, be nice for a, a king to give charity, and, and God certainly does that, and Jesus certainly does that, but he does so much more than that. He takes our poverty and our humility and our loneliness and our crisis and our turmoil and our struggle and our hurts and our tears, and he makes them his own. He lives in his people, and with his people. Keep reading with me, Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, again, not being in that context, it might be a little bit difficult for us to picture why, why shepherds, and maybe we're so familiar with this story, we just know that's what happened, but why shepherds? Again, this is not coincidence. This isn't accidental. That of all the people in Judea, all the people that God could have chosen to let his glory be known and seen, he chose shepherds. Shepherds were the lowliest of career paths. That was the lowliest people, people who were ceremonially unclean, people who were deemed untrustworthy. Other Jewish people would say, a shepherd, you got to watch, watch yourself around shepherds because they'll take what you've got. They, they didn't feel like they could trust them. God chose these people, these people to whom he was going to manifest his glory. Think in your mind. What might that mean in our culture? Who, who might that, that be in our culture? What career might that be? What group of people might that be where God says, these people, in order to show you what I'm all about, in order to show you what I'm doing, in order to show you what this good news is all about, I choose the people that are rejected. I choose the people that other people don't want to be around. I choose the people that others see as ceremonially unclean. I choose to be with the people who other people don't trust. Those are my people, and I'm going to manifest my glory to them. These are the guests at my party. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Can you imagine this sight? Heaven and earth coming together, meeting together in this field outside of Bethlehem. This merging of heaven and earth as it was in the beginning, as it will be in the end, right here in the middle of the story. A new day dawning. A new day breaking into the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, in the middle of turmoil. 
in the middle of Caesar pressing his thumb harder and harder and harder on the Jewish people as they scream out in pain and agony. In the middle of all of this, manifested heaven and earth come together. This amazing show of the angelic hosts. And who gets a front row seat? The rich and powerful? The religious elite? A bunch of shepherds out in the field. A bunch of shepherds that other people didn't trust and didn't like and didn't want to be around. God says, I want them to have a front row seat at the beginning of the new era, the new age of humanity. As I break into the world, as my son becomes king, I want the lowliest of the lowly. I want the poorest of the poor. I want the, the, the people that are on the margins. I want them to have a front row seat at my party. See, God is doing exactly what Jesus would later teach his disciples to do. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is amazing, isn't it? That God is breaking into the world and God is changing everything. And God is establishing his kingdom with his values and his priorities. He's setting the world right side up. And he wants shepherds to have a front row seat. He wants shepherds to be the guests of honor at his party. And do you know what that means for you? Do you know what that means for you in the midst of your crisis? Do you know what that means for you in the midst of your brokenness? Do you know what that means for you in the midst of your lowliness? Do you know what that means for you in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through? God wants you at this party. God wants you. I don't care what anybody else says about you. It doesn't matter what your dad says about you. It doesn't matter what your mom says about you. It doesn't matter what your neighbors say about you. It doesn't matter what you say about you. God says, if you will humble yourself before my son, I want you at my party. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby Lying in a manger. Again, a manger. A manger. A horse trough. That's the bed for God's son. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Glorifying and praising God. And I, I just couldn't help but ask as I read that, what's changed for them? What's changed for them? I mean, these shepherds are going to... What are they going to do? Go back to the field? 
What are they going to do there? Watch sheep? And what are people going to say about them? Yeah, those are shepherds, and not only are those shepherds, and we don't really have much to do with them, now they're kind of crazy too, because they say all kinds of weird stories about what happened one night. People are still going to dislike them. People are still going to distrust them. People are still going to despise them. But God had met them where they are. This story is all about the glory and the grime, the divine and the dirt, the majesty and the mud, and that's where God met them. So what changed for them? Not their career, not their livelihood, not their economic status, not whether or not people liked them or trusted them, but what changed for them? Everything, everything. There's no way that these shepherds could be the same people they were after this event than before this event because everything had changed because God had taken up his presence with them. God had given them his presence. They had experienced the presence of God. And isn't that what the gospel teaches us? The gospel teaches us that hurting people, hurting people need presence more than gifts. Hurting people need presence more than gifts. In your pain, in your struggle, in your crisis, oh, it would be nice if your situation changed, if you had some gift that would change your situation and change your status, that would be nice and wonderful, but God gives you something even better and something more, and that is his presence. But do we recognize that? That Jesus is present here and now? Jesus is present here. Jesus is present through the Spirit in you if you belong to him and you've been united with him in baptism and you've given your life to him, then Jesus is present with you everywhere you are, everywhere you go. Every time you cry a tear, every time you feel lonely, every time you're grieved, every time you're Whatever, Jesus is there. And Jesus is interceding on your behalf faithfully and mercifully as your high priest and saying to you like nobody else can say to you, I know your pain. Your pain is my pain. And in your pain, I give you my presence. And presence is worth more than gifts. And church, that changes the way we interact with the people around us as well, doesn't it? That hurting people need presence more than gifts. And there are hurting people all around us. There are people in your life, in your neighborhood, in your family, in this congregation who are hurting. And it's good to give them gifts. It's good to send them nice notes. It's good to send them a text message. It's great to give them a call. It's great to give them a Christmas gift. All of that is fine and good and wonderful. But what they really need is presence. They need you to do for them what Jesus has done for you. Be present with them. Their burdens 
become your burdens. Their pains become your pains. Their experiences, their hurt, their heartache, their turmoil, their trials, their crisis becomes yours because that's what it looks like to be family. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's adopted us into his family and given us his presence in the spirit and taught us to do the same for one another. So when we talk about the hurting and we talk about the poor and we talk about the people who are going through trials, we're not talking about them, we're talking about us. And even if we personally aren't experiencing that trial or that crisis, we're going to be present with those who are so that we bear one another's burdens. This is where the gospel lives. The gospel lives where glory meets grime, where divine meets dirt, where majesty meets mud. This is where we live as Jesus followers, getting down in the grime and the dirt and the mud with each other, being present with each other. So that's my encouragement this week. Find someone, whether it's someone in your family, someone in this church family, someone in your neighborhood, someone you work with or go to school with, and be present with them. Do for them what Jesus has done for you. Give them the gift of your presence. And if you're not yet a child of God, if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, then become one. Put Jesus on in baptism so that he can give you, in the midst of everything you're going through, the gift of his presence. And if we can be there for you, if we can be present with you right now, the only way we can know how, how can I, how can we be present with you? What are your pains? What are your hurts? The only way we can know is if you share them with us. Our shepherds meet in the prayer room in the back after service. And every Sunday right here, we offer an invitation because we want to know your pains and your hurts, your trials, your turmoil, your crisis, so that we can be present with you. If we can do that this morning for you, won't you come forward now as we stand and sing?